Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everyone. Welcome and thank you for downloading the Fired Up podcast for this week. This is Steve. I host each week. And I appreciate you taking time to listen to what we have to say here on Fired Up. So let's get right into it. Uh, We've got some interesting things to talk about this week. But as always, let's start off with our update on where we are with COVID and the monkeypox pandemic and viruses traversing our country here. So under COVID, we have 94.2 million cases have been reported. We have uh, 1.043 million people who have died from the disease. And we have 605 million people who have received uh, vaccinations uh, against the COVID pandemic. Uh, In the monkeypox category, uh, we have 17,432 cases that have been reported in the United States thus far this year. So we continue to see uh, a, a slow uptick, a very slow uptick in monkeypox cases and the COVID situation shows some leveling out. We still are seeing cases coming in, uh, but the rates are nowhere near where they were a year ago. So that, I guess, is positive news. Uh, But it does point out that, as always, you know, we need to continue to be vigilant. We need to continue to make sure that when situations warrant, that we're wearing our masks, that we're, you know, distancing ourselves when we need to, and that we're doing the things to keep ourselves, our family, our community, and our country safe. So keep up the good work, and let's make sure that we keep this uh, this action going, because that's the best way we have of you know reducing these diseases to minimal standards uh, here in the United States. All right, so let's get into... Uh, what's been going on this week. Uh, There were some big events that were reported. Uh, On the one hand, uh, the Biden administration announced its uh, signing of the forgiveness of uh, up to $10,000 in student debt. And uh, for those uh, who uh, met income requirements and received Pell Grants, that amount actually is $20,000. The action taken by the Biden administration uh, has been widely praised in uh, Democratic and progressive circles as addressing, even in a small part, uh, some of the overwhelming student loan debt that has afflicted uh, many members of the American society here for many, many years. Now, it also has received some criticism, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, too. But the the key point here is that, you know, it is a positive step forward in addressing the uh, crushing student debt that many people in this country have been carrying for many, many years. And as I said, has been uh, praised uh, by both recipients and political leaders uh, all across the uh, progressive and, and liberal spectrum. Um, it also has received some very pointed criticisms from some members of the Republican Party, and uh, it has been a talking point 
for those who um, you know, oppose uh, the Biden administration policies. And, you know, it has been an interesting thing to watch transpire. For example, um, if you've listened to, you know, mainstream media or have, have read reports in, you know, uh, published documents uh, in the news sector um, from the mainstream, uh, you've heard, you know, many uh, Republican leaders and conservatives uh, condemning the the issuance of these uh, loan credits uh, or loan forgiveness and um, it, the the clapback that has been occurring on both sides has been something interesting to watch uh, notably uh, some of the political figures on the right um, have been very vocal in their criticism of the the plan from the Biden administration and in response, the White House uh, has issued a series of tweets and messages that have gone out, uh, particularly focusing on those who have been the most vocal. And you know, I'll, I'll name drop a few here. Um, one of the, the largest, or not largest, the most vocal uh, critics has been uh, Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, who was uh, crying foul very loudly about the, the student debt forgiveness. And the White House responded by uh, publishing the fact that Representative Green had received $184,000 in uh, PPP loans during the pandemic uh, that were totally forgiven. Not not por not proportionally forgiven or partially forgiven. Uh, same thing with several other members of Congress. One of which uh, received almost a million dollars of loans that were uh, forgiven in their entirety. And it's not just political figures. Uh, Tom Brady, the you know quarterback for the uh, Buccaneers football team in the NFL. Uh, had more than a million dollars of PPP loans forgiven. And you know it, it has created something of a furor that several of these individuals who were publicly cited as having these loans forgiven were extremely high net worth individuals uh, raising the question as to why they needed that loan uh, in the first place. Now, granted, the loans were given uh, ostensibly in support of business, but you know, if if you're Tom Brady, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, uh, you could very well afford to self-fund for whatever needs your business might have, rather than coming to the government and um, and and taking money uh, in that program. Now, full disclosure, I am a, a fan of Tom Brady as a football player. Uh, so, you know, I do have a little bit of disappointment that he is in the collective of people that have received that forgiveness. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, so what we've seen happening is many uh, political leaders and, and other leaders uh, who receive these loans and had them 100% forgiven, 
pretty much had their arguments uh, tamped down on by information that came out from the White House. Now, you know, you can, you know, hold up, you know, your your hand and, and fist bump and high five for, you know, what the White House did in this case. But I'm more of a mind to uh, question why, again, why uh, high net worth individuals needed PPP loans. And in the second place, um, you know, why we are at a place where it's necessary for the White House to publicly um, uh, not shame, I won't say shame, but publicly call out that these individuals uh, received these monies and uh, got them forgiven, uh, I guess, in you know, a, a retaliation for the, the bad publicity that you know, these people were espousing uh, over the loans for the, for the most part. Um, clearly, you know, forgiving, you know, uh, 10 or $20,000 of loans, depending upon income and circumstance, uh, is a beneficial program for, you know, working class people, low income people, and those for whom college debt uh, serves as a huge burden. You know, if you're carrying, you know, a, a significant amount of debt, uh, it impacts your credit rating. It impacts your ability to to do many things uh, like getting loans and you know buying a home, you know even you know buying a car and other things and perhaps even getting jobs. That you know having this forgiveness gives a little bit of breathing room uh, for these individuals, and that's not a bad thing. I mean that is something that you know we need to to have. You know, more of in this country where we are caring for those people who are working hard, playing by the rules and, you know, just need that little help to get over that bump uh, and and have you know, a little better uh, shot at success. So we'll we'll keep track on this and see, you know, how the feedback is going and uh, keep you posted right here on the Fired Up podcast. So another big news story that uh, you likely have heard if you've had any connection to uh, any media outlet across the board uh, this past week uh, was that on Friday, the 26th of August, 2022, uh, the Department of Justice released a uh, redacted version of the affidavit that was the basis for the search warrant the FBI used uh, to go into former President Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, resort home and uh, seize additional uh, papers and documents and, and other things uh, that were there. And, you know, almost immediately the, the pushback on that from Republicans uh, Republicans and Trump supporters out there was uh, fast and furious in terms of, you know, why they thought that this search was uh, illegal, unnecessary, an overreach, uh, take your pick. Um, and in response, the DOJ took the unprecedented move of releasing the affidavit in support of a search warrant 
uh, in this instance. Now, by way of background, you, you should understand that in the, the process of obtaining a search warrant, uh, law enforcement must prove to a federal judge that there is a, uh, a basis for why a search and seizure needs to happen. Uh, remember, uh, we have a right to protection from unreasonable search and seizures um, provided to us by the Constitution. But in order for the government to you know, search private residence, private property, uh, they need to first uh, provide a, an affidavit, provide a sworn statement that documents why uh, a search warrant and, and seizure is necessary. And in this case, the, or in most cases actually, it is that there is evidence at a given location that a crime has been committed. Uh, in this case, the uh, affidavit which is heavily redacted um, shows that there were 184 documents uh, that were uh, handed over by the Trump team uh, in the earlier um, visit to Mar-a-Lago by officials from the National Archive Records Administration, or NARA, uh, and they found, uh, as I said, they retrieved 15 boxes uh, back in early this year, uh, May 16th to 18th, when the FBI agents conducted a preliminary review. And of the 15 boxes of documents, uh, the preliminary triage of those documents showed that there were 184 unique documents bearing classification markings, uh, and these included 67 documents that were marked as confidential, 92 documents marked as secret, and 25 documents marked as top secret. You know, and according to the affidavit, um, the FBI agents also observed markings reflecting the following compartments or you know, subsections of the top secret classification uh, including uh, what is called HCS for Human Confidential Sources, uh, FISA, which is the uh, Federal um, Secret Warrants Act, um, ORCON, uh, NORFORN, and SI uh, are others. Uh, all of these acronyms really mean that these documents are ones that are extremely sensitive and uh, should not be uh, held, kept, uh, or you know, reviewed in situations where it is outside of a secure uh, facility. And obviously, Mar-a-Lago uh, is not a secure facility by government secret standards, you know, even though it is you know, a protected location because the former president resides there. Um, these documents uh, were found, as I said, in the original review that was held uh, by the FBI and uh, DOJ uh, people in conjunction with communications they had um, you know, in, in the beginning portions of this year with uh, Donald Trump's lawyers and, and other members of the Trump team 
and you know they handed over these 15 boxes well based on the review of the documents that I, I just described uh, it was clear uh, from that and also from records that NARA had on what should be in the official you know records and documents uh, of the Trump administration that there was still uh, information that was missing so you know, after reaching out to uh, Trump's legal team and, and others, uh, they attempted to, you know, get, you know, uh, again, a cooperative handover of these boxes. And, you know, when that wasn't forthcoming over, you know, a, a couple of months in, in discussions, uh, they put together this affidavit and went before a federal magistrate who, by the way, was a, a judge that was appointed by the former president, um, just by way of mentioning, and uh, requested approval to seek a search warrant uh, for the Trump residence at Mar-a-Lago. And uh, when the magistrate, upon reviewing the, the totality of the documents that they found in their earlier visit to Mar-a-Lago, deemed that a, a search warrant uh, was, in fact, uh, justified. The FBI then proceeded to go through the process of applying for a search warrant, uh, which was signed off for by the Department of Justice. And you know, information sources are saying that it was signed off by the head of the Department of Justice, um, Merrick Garland and you know from that they then went to Mar-a-Lago uh, within a couple of days and executed that search warrant so you know it is interesting to note as you read through and I encourage you to uh, download the affidavit as I said it is heavily redacted uh, probably Nearly half of it is, you know, nothing but black lines and, and black boxes. Um, but there is information there that speaks to the process that was undertaken, the concerns that were raised uh, in, in this, this matter, as well as some of the arguments that were uh, put forward uh, by the former president and his staff uh, regarding these documents, uh, in, in a nutshell, they were claiming that these documents had been declassified uh, by you know, former President Trump and therefore that you know, his possession of them at his Mar-a-Lago home uh, was you know, not a, quote, crime, close quote. Uh, this you know, uh, came from an article that was published in Breitbart um, uh, by Kash Patel, uh, former uh, top uh, POTUS administration official, who characterized as misleading reports and other news organizations that NARA had found classified material among records that F. POTUS provided to NARA from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and his, the basis for his argument was that you know, form, the former president had already declassified those documents. 
Now, there's been some discussion in recent days about that declassification. uh, And, you know, while it is true that the president of the United States has an unlimited power to uh, classify or declassify uh, any document, um, there are a couple of caveats to that. Some documents, especially those with the highest top secret ratings that I mentioned earlier, uh, cannot just be declassified with the stroke of a pen by the President of the United States. There is a process that has to be followed uh, involving uh, getting the approval of the originating agency of those documents uh, you know whether it is you know the the military or the um, national intelligence team, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that uh, these documents are able to be declassified. And yet the other point that you know, it, it, unless you listen very carefully, you don't hear a whole lot of mention about is that even if the documents were declassified, they are still the property of the United States government. And this includes letters, um, notes, and other things that were written by the president uh, while in office. Uh, And those are covered under the Presidential Records Act, which provides that these documents are actually the property and must be held in trust for the people of the United States. And in detailing, you know, elements of the, the storage of these documents, uh, there, is a, there is a citation in the affidavit uh, that reads in part, uh, On June 8, 2022, DOJ counsel sent F. POTUS Council 1 a letter which reiterates that the premises, which is what they've defined Mar-a-Lago as in the affidavit, Uh, are not authorized to store classified information and requested the preservation of the storage room and boxes that had been moved from the White House to the premises. Specifically, the letter stated in part, and it quotes from the letter here, uh, as I previously indicated to you, Mar-a-Lago does not include a secure location authorized for the storage of classified information. As such, it appears that since the time classified documents, and then there's a redaction, were removed from the secure facilities at the White House and moved to Mar-a-Lago on or around January 20th, 2021, they have not been handled in an appropriate manner or stored in an appropriate location. Accordingly, we ask that the room in Mar-a-Lago where the documents had been stored be secured and that all of the boxes that were moved from the White House to Mar-a-Lago along with any other items in that room be preserved in that room in their current condition until further notice. And this is an interesting point because, you know, as it says, Mar-a-Lago is not a secure federal records storage facility. Um, And you know, the, the access to the storage room mentioned, as well as other locations at Mar-a-Lago, uh, in no way met the criteria or requirements for a secure storage location for these types of documents. Now, as I, I said a, you know, a moment ago, 
while the president has the authority to declassify documents, that authority is that the president can issue a directive to the originating agency who then can declassify the documents. Now, it's been reported in the news that there is no such record of any request along those lines having been made by the former president uh, while he was still in office. So the question of whether or not a so-called presidential declassification is, in fact, in effect. Uh, and you know, in addition, it, it's, it's noted, and I have heard and, and seen this in some of the media accounts, that you know, the, the fact that a document is declassified, which basically uh, and, and very basically defines what entities can actually review and handle uh, you know, or even look at uh, said documents does not take away the fact that some of these documents contain sensitive information such as national secrets, uh, military uh, information on uh, you know, weapons and control systems and military capabilities of other nations around the world, as well as you know, what's called human intelligence, uh, that is information that's collected by individuals uh, for the United States government you know, in foreign nations working clandestine, clandestinely um, and, and so forth. So the affidavit continues on uh, and basically citing, you know, uh, again, amidst the redactions, there's probable cause to believe that documents containing classified NDI, National Defense Information, and the presidential records re remain at the ranch. So you, you can see, and, and again, uh, sections of this document are very heavily redacted but there is information that you can glean. You know, it, defi it, it defines and describes uh, that the storage room, uh, you know, the uh, president, the former president's residential suite, Pine Hall, the quote, 45 office, and other spaces within the premises are not currently authorized location for the storage of classified information or national defense information. Um, so, you know, they, they lay out a, a convincing uh, argument uh, citing the federal regulations that, um, you know, are, are in fact uh, allegedly being violated. And, you know, in the conclusion section of the document, uh, it calls out, uh, based on the foregoing facts and circumstances, I submit that the probable cause exists to believe that evidence, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 793, uh, subsections 2071 or 1519, will be found at the premises. Further, I submit that this affidavit supports probable cause for a warrant to search the president, the premises rather, uh, as described in the attachment and seize items as uh, described in attachment B. So, you know, that very, um, very briefly outlines, you know, what the, the, the cause was for which the search warrant was to be issued. 
and it was signed by uh, a, a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. His name and signature uh, are redacted to protect his or her identity. So, as I said, you know, it, it is worth a read. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about this affidavit in the media since its release. And um, I think you know, if, if you are you know, of an open mind, as you read this, you have to understand that there is a more than reasonable risk uh, that sits at the, at the basis for what transpired at Mar-a-Lago. So obviously, you know, this is an ongoing story. Um, there will be you know, a lot more discussion and information that comes out regarding what happened to the documents, how they wound up at Mar-a-Lago. Um, I think, in my opinion, it is going to be a very long time before we see anything you know, descriptive about the actual documents. Uh, some of these you know, are highly uh, sensitive documents uh, describing means and methods by which the intelligence community in the United States uh, you know, gets its work done elsewhere around the world. And you know, even you know, years on uh, from the actual events, they will not release it because uh, that information is still foundational to the operations of American intelligence forces around the world. But we will keep uh, aware of this. We will keep following up on it. And as new information comes out, we will, of course, bring it to you here on the Fired Up podcast. So with that being said, let's, um, let's break here. Uh, we have a public service announcement from uh, WJMS Media, and you know, we want you to, to hear that. Thank you for listening thus far. Please stay with us uh, as we come back on the other side of the break. We have some other interesting uh, items that we are going to discuss. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, and we'll be right back. WJMS Media is the proud Raise Your Voice media sponsor for the American Lung Association's 2022 Lung Force Walk, Bridgewater, taking place on Saturday, September 17th at Duke Island Park in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Walk with us to raise critical awareness and funds to end lung cancer and other chronic lung diseases. For more information on how to register for free or donate, visit www.lungforce.org bridgewater. Because when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. And welcome back. Thank you for staying with us here on the Fired Up Podcast and WJMS Media. And we thank you to our friends at WJMS Media for the uh, public service announcement you just heard. All right. Um, I said in the first segment that we would stay tuned to this. And um, actually, a, another article came across my radar uh, while I was transitioning between uh, the first half of the show recording in the second half and this comes from the Daily Beast and the byline from Brad Moss is the the headline is simple it says quote it's over Trump will be indicted 
Um, and the article uh, goes on to talk about you know much of what I was just saying, but uh, I will go through and hit the high points for you. Uh, and, and according to, again, Brad Moss from the Daily Beast, uh, he starts off with, I have finally seen enough. Donald Trump will be indicted by a federal grand jury. Uh, he goes on, you heard me right. I believe Trump will actually be indicted for a criminal offense. Even with all its redactions, the probable cause affidavit published today by magistrate judge in Florida makes clear to me three essential points, and he cites the following. Number one, that Trump was in unauthorized possession of national defense information, namely properly marked classified documents. Number two, he was put on notice by the U.S. government that he was not permitted to retain these documents at Mar-a-Lago. And number three, he continued to maintain possession of the documents, uh, parentheses, and allegedly undertook efforts to conceal them in different places throughout the property, close parentheses, up until the FBI finally executed a search warrant earlier this month. And then uh, Brad goes on to say, that's the ball game, folks. Absent some unforeseen change in factual or legal circumstances, I believe there is little left for the Justice Department to do but to decide whether to wait until after the midterms to formally seek the indictment from the grand jury. The cruelest irony for Trump, he cites, is that it never needed to be this way. And, you know, put aside that in the chaos following his election loss, Trump's team never undertook the normal procedure for properly sorting through and archiving his presidential records. In coordination with the National Archives and Records Administration, or NARA, put aside that properly marked classified records were shipped to Mar-a-Lago and sat there for months until he began turning stuff over to NARA in late 2021. And he talks about, had he fully cooperated and returned all the records to NARA last year, this likely would have never become a criminal matter. DOJ would have declined to take any action, notwithstanding the existence of the classified records, and it would have been a no harm, no foul situation. Just a minor, another minor story in the Trump saga of incompetence. So, you know, what, what he's saying here, and, and we'll step out of the article for a second, is, you know, something I've heard a few uh, mainstream media pundits bringing out that you know it, it was you know the 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 stubbornness or the you know I'm better than you are ness of Donald Trump that led to this whole debacle and you know there's there's case to be made for that you know in in one sense there there's been news that that talked about when questioned about the documents. Donald Trump said that, you know, they're mine, not theirs. Uh, and as I said in the, you know, in the first half, records of presidential activities, whether they are speeches, notes, uh, meeting records, handwritten notes, stuff written on napkins, all of that becomes the property of the people of the United States uh, and not the president or former president of the United States. 
Uh, and strange enough, the, the law that specifies the criteria under which stuff from you know, a, a sitting president uh, has to be archived and handled and treated is a law that came about uh, shortly after the Watergate prosecution of Richard Nixon uh, and specifically was instigated by the battles that were fought to release the uh, White House Oval Office recording tapes of the meetings that Nixon had with his staff and other individuals involving the break-in at the Watergate Hotel. And that was more than 50 years ago. So, you know, it, it is um, just another instance where uh, the former president has, you know, gotten himself trapped in a trap of his own creation where, you know, he could have, you know, clearly said, um, yeah, I, I, it was a mistake. Here are all the documents I took. And, you know, he probably would not be in the hot water. He finds himself now. Um, so, you know, there, there is that. The, the second thing and kind of the waiting for the other shoe to drop portion of this is that we're waiting to see if there's more. Look at the circumstances um, that, that brought us to where we are at, at this point in time with these documents at Mar-a-Lago. Um, early on, the FBI and the NARA, uh, the NARA team uh, communicated with former President Trump and his staff that he was holding on to materials that he was not entitled to hold on to. And, you know, essentially they were saying, please, sir, can we have our boxes back? Well, the, the Trump team gave them back some of the boxes. You know, initially, as it said in the affidavit, there were 15 boxes of documents that were returned by uh, the former president's staff to NARA and to the, the DOJ uh, after you know, they had held their meetings and, and the requests had been issued and so forth. Now, fast forward you know, several months later, based on the study of those documents, uh, it was determined that there was still more that was missing and, you know, a, a series of additional requests were made uh, to the Trump team, uh, which didn't lead to the turning over of any additional boxes. So the DOJ had no recourse but to issue a, uh, a search warrant and the FBI went and, well, what do you know? We found 11 more boxes. Now, that leads me uh, for, for particular, but probably many people, to raise the question, is that everything? Is there more? I mean, it's almost like a, a plot in a movie where an initial collection of boxes is handed over relatively easily. Uh, is there the intention that maybe that will throw them off the track? Maybe they'll be satisfied with this and go home. 
Uh, and when they come back around and saying, no, there's still more information that our records say is missing. Uh, and, you know, they go back and forth on that and then it ends up with a search warrant. And they go through Mar-a-Lago and they find 11 more boxes of materials, which we also don't know what those boxes contain. Although the receipt that was given to Trump's lawyer uh, the night of the, um, the search indicates that there are uh, boxes and documents that are marked with, you know, the classified secret, top secret, top secret SCI um, labels that were found at Mar-a-Lago. Now, you know, it, it's, it's like fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. We have to ask the question, is that absolutely everything? And, you know, Trump supporters will probably say they've gotten it all and go home, leave our man alone. Uh, the rest of us are probably like, eh, I'm not so sure, you know, uh, and I'm sorry. It's just, you know, will we ever know if all of the documents uh, have been returned? I don't know. You know, as I said, it took 50 years for documents from the Watergate uh, scenario to make it to to the public. Uh, it also took 50 years from the investigation documents from the Kennedy assassination uh, to be released to the public. So, you know, we may have to, you know, wait 50 years to find out, you know, if there were ever additional documents that were in Mar-a-Lago that, you know, we didn't know about. And that's kind of, that's kind of where this article uh, from Brad Moss at the Daily Beast is kind of leading, although he doesn't say that directly. Um, you know, he does indicate that, you know, they, they've already lied to the FBI once, saying that they had given them everything. Um, and this was on a sworn affidavit. So there may be another shoe to drop with uh, the Trump attorney who signed a, a fraudulent or a, a untrue affidavit uh, to the FBI. So there's more to this and we will keep, you know, keep digging on it and we will keep bringing, you know, whatever information comes to light. But just to tie a bow on this segment of it, um, he does conclude his article and saying, all in all, this case should, and in my opinion, will result in an indictment. Sure, an indictment does not equal a conviction. Trump is still assumed innocent until proven guilty. There are unknown variables like whether the prosecution would occur in Florida or in D.C. We do not know what evidence Trump might have to substantiate his declassification claim, and we do not know what the courts would say about his various arguments. Uh, and he ends with, get the popcorn ready either way, and I concur with that sentiment. So, you know, as I said, this is something that's going to unravel for us over a, a substantial amount of time, and, you know, we'll stay on top of it, and let you know what we find okay 
All right, let's um, take a huge pivot away from the Mar-a-Lago situation and documents and DOJ. Uh, I want to follow up on a story uh, that was you know, equally big and continues to reverberate, uh, not just here in this country, but around the world. Uh, and that is the aftermath of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade and you know its decision in the Dobbs case um, and there's an article from NPR uh, by Sarah McCammon who uh, reports that and she writes this week marks two months since the US Supreme Court's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision reversed decades of precedent guaranteeing abortion rights and the effects of the decision are continuing to unfold as abortion bans take effect around the country. Uh, she goes on to say, well before the opinion was issued on June 24th, more than a dozen states had so-called trigger bans in place. Laws written to prohibit abortion as soon as Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that had legalized the procedure for nearly 50 years, was overturned. Some took effect almost immediately. At least eight states have implemented total or near-total abortion bans, according to the Center for Reproductive Rights. Others were at least temporarily delayed by litigation or by brief waiting periods written into the laws. This week, a new round of bans in Tennessee, Texas, Idaho, and North Dakota is set to take effect barring intervention from the courts. So the, the article is citing uh, what is transpiring as we you know, take the survey of the states uh, and goes on to say a uh, cascade of trigger bans around the country is coming. To a large degree, the impact of these laws already is a reality even before they're officially implemented due to multiple layers of restrictions. In Texas, where abortion has been prohibited after about six weeks of pregnancy since last September under a law that allowed private citizens to sue abortion providers, the shift was already well underway before the Dobbs decision. The state's trigger ban, which prohibits the procedure almost entirely, takes effect this week. But also, there are no clinics, I'm sorry, but already rather, there are no clinics providing abortions in Texas, and some have made plans to move out of the state to places like New Mexico. And it goes on, Idaho, too, has an abortion ban in place that relies on civil enforcement where individuals can sue people accused of illegally providing abortions after about six weeks. The Department of Justice has sued in an effort to block another, even more restrictive law, Idaho's trigger ban, which is set to take effect, uh, or which was set to take effect August 25th, which was a couple of days ago. North Dakota's only remaining clinic has, at least for now, moved its abortion services to Minnesota, where abortion remains legal. Lawyers for the clinic have asked a judge to block the law from taking effect on Friday. And in Tennessee, which already has very limited abortion access because of a ban on abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy, the law scheduled to take effect this week goes even further, 
essentially banning all abortions with no exceptions for rape or incest. The law also lacks explicit exceptions for medical emergencies, although it includes a provision that would allow doctors to mount a defense against felony abortion charges by arguing they intervened to save a pregnant woman's life or avoid the, ser the serious risk of substantial and irreversible uh, impairment of a major bodily function. So the, um, there is a, a huge number of battles going on around the country uh, in state and federal courts between abortion rights groups who have been trying to argue that many state constitutions order protect, offer protections for abortion rights. Uh, groups opposed to abortion rights, like the Alliance Defending Freedom, efforts are underway to push states to enforce abortion restrictions. So, you know, in, in a quote from uh, Aaron Hawley, uh, the group's senior counsel, says she hopes to see courts in Wyoming, Arizona, and elsewhere allow abortion bans to take effect. Uh, she's quoted as saying, I think we'll see in a number of other states that these laws will come online, that intermediate courts of appeals and state supreme courts will hopefully find that there is no state constitutional right to abortion. So, you know, that is part of the ongoing battle. And truthfully, it, this is something that, you know, if we've, you've been paying attention to the abortion rights battle over the years leading up to uh, what transpired with the Supreme Court, uh, this is uh, unfortunately not a surprise. Uh, one of the final pieces in this article talks about post-Roe state lawmakers consider new abortion laws. And it cites the Dobbs decision has, promote, has prompted rather some Republican state officials to look at passing new laws. In early August, Indiana lawmakers approved a near-total abortion ban, which takes effect in mid-September. Um, you know, Elizabeth Smith, who is a state policy and advocacy director with the Center for Reproductive Rights, notes that some abortion rights opponents have proposed legislation designed to prevent people from seeking abortions in other states. Uh, essentially, they're uh, implementing or trying to implement so-called travel bans, which would make traveling across state lines to receive abortion services a crime as well. So, you know, the, as the article concludes, the chipping away at abortion rights didn't happen overnight, and the rights to get them back uh, won't as well, uh, but the battles uh, are continuing. So we will keep following this and we will update you as we learn more. And uh, it, it just is another part of you know, living in America in 2022 that we are, are going through these hardcore battles uh, on many different levels in many different locations. So we'll keep you posted. Keep it locked here. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll keep you up to date. Um, one of the stories that I believe I brought into the podcast last week was a law that Texas was looking at implementing um, called the In God We Trust Law, 
which was uh, a law that would allow signs with the American flag, the, the Texas state flag, and the words, in God we trust, to be displayed in schools, even though uh, that you know, ban or, or violates uh, separation of church and state, the law actually seeks to solidify a loophole that says if the signs are not purchased by the, the state, i.e. the Board of Education or you know, the school board or whoever, but rather are donated uh, or paid for with other than school funds outside of this, the school system, uh, that signs can be uh, put up in schools again. The state can't hang those signs up or can't purchase the signs to be hung up, but the, the schools can accept the donation of the signs or a donation of the funds to purchase the signs uh, and then go ahead and hang them up. Well, uh, there is a plan afoot to test this law, uh, and this comes uh, out of NPR. And uh, the article written by Wynne Davis, uh, headline, An Activist Plans to Test Texas's In God We Trust Law with Signs in Arabic. Um, you know, they, and the article cites, There are those who heed the warning, don't mess with Texas, and then there are those who do the exact opposite. Uh, the activist, whose name is Chaz Stevens, is in the second group. He's taking on a Texas law that requires public schools to display signs and posters with the national motto, In God We Trust, in conspicuous places. The law requires that the signs were either donated or purchased from private donations to the school. Stevens, who lives in Florida and is known for his petitions to local governments, heard of the law about a week ago and told NPR he was irritated by the move to bring religion, in this case Christianity, into schools. Uh, he's quoted as saying, that should be irritating for you regardless of what God or not God you believe in, he said. As far as he could tell, there was no requirement that the motto be written in English. He decided to start a fundraising campaign to send posters to schools around the state with the motto written in Arabic instead. And if you go to the NPR website and look up the article, they have a picture of you know, what uh, an example of the sign would look like. It's an American flag, and it has in Arabic lettering above it uh, words that say, In God We Trust. So, as Stephen says, they didn't say anything about language. And as an artist, it's always art forward for me. So I thought, well, know what looks good? And then it occurred to me to, uh, to me that Arabic is beautiful. He said that the goal with this campaign is the same as with his previous endeavors. It's simple. It's empowering hypocrisy itself. Turn, by turning bureaucracies against themselves, figuring out what the bureaucratic hypocrisy is, Stevens said. The Texas law passed during the le last legislative session. The law was passed last summer. At the time, there were more concerns about the pandemic 
than the signs and only now are more being donated. The Texas Tribune has reported this. Republican State Senator uh, Brian Hughes authored the bill and has shared updates as groups have started making donations to different districts and schools. And again, you know, as um, State Rep. Hughes states, uh, he says, quote, read the bill. Sign must contain, quote, in God we trust, quote, the U.S. flag, Texas flag, and may not depict any other words or images, Hughes wrote. Print what you like, but only these signs qualify under the law. So, you know, they, they are expanding or, or trying to drive through the loophole on this uh, by saying that, you know, the words that have to be posted are in God we trust. The language under which those words are printed does not have to be Englished. So uh, it's an interesting twist on, you know, this this whole uh, movement. And, you know, it, it, it's also kind of a, a, a chuckle that, you know, we, we have to go to these kind of extremes to point out the sometimes foolishness of these efforts. Now, I'm not saying that having a sign within God we trust and the American flag and the Texas flag is foolish, but the fact that we need to write a law setting up the guidelines by which this can be done uh, is, you know, something of a, a, a chuckle. So we will stay on top of this as well to see where this goes. Um, you know, and apparently it is starting to uh, gain some traction, both pro and con. Uh, you know, a, a Christian organization and other organizations, including the Yellow Rose Texas Republican Women Group and Patriot Mobile, which calls itself a Christian conservative wireless service provider, have donated posters printed in English to schools outside of Houston, as well as in the Dallas metropolitan area. So, you know, Stevens is saying, you know, he's, you know, waiting to see. Uh, he doesn't have a list of schools yet in mind, but he's aiming to send the signs out to politically liberal and conservative areas. So, you know, his, his words, if I send out 500 signs, I expect 98% of them not to go up. And that's a win for me. Maybe two out of a hundred go up on a wall, and I wanted the two. It proves the point. So, as I said, we'll keep track. We'll let you know what transpires. Uh, we're definitely going to keep this one on our radar. All right, that's going to wrap up the uh, podcast for this week. As always, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, listen in. If you have questions or comments uh, or want to weigh in on any of the stories that we've told this week, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. And I will be more than happy to bring your message to the show and uh, have a discussion. And, you know, we can start some conversation from there. So as always, thank you all so much for choosing to listen to the podcast today. I do truly appreciate it. Be safe. Stay well. Protect yourself from 
COVID and um, monkeypox. And I look forward to bringing you another podcast in seven days. Mm-hmm.